0: Pastor tremendous. Let's just us just, just pray and worship the Lord. Lord, we're just at your mercy. Father, we pray you would indeed respond in mercy and grace to that song, which was a prayer. Show us Christ, Lord. Reveal him to each heart in this room and afar by the power of your Spirit. And your loving grace, we pray in Christ's name, amen. 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 If you can remain standing and open to the book of Galatians, page 973, chapter 2, for the reading of God's word, Galatians chapter 2. If you're joining us today, maybe just for the first time, or you haven't been here in a little while, we've been making our way through the book of Galatians, and in this, in this letter, Paul is defending the truth of the gospel. And he's defending it against some teachers, Jewish teachers who thought that faith in Jesus was good, it's necessary, he's the Messiah, but not quite enough. To faith in Christ one must add obedience to the law of Moses to be justified before God. And what he's doing in chapter 2 is Paul is recounting his confrontation with Peter uh, as he's telling the Galatian churches Uh, So we want to pick that up again, this paragraph, beginning at verse 14 through 21, is all a recounting of that confrontation with Peter, and our attention will be mostly on verse 20 and 21 this morning. So reading from the Word of God, beginning at verse 14, Paul writes, But when I saw that their conduct, that's Peter and other Jewish Christians, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter's Aramaic name, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, that's when no one was looking, right? And not like a Jew, well, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? (laughs) We, meaning Peter, Paul, we Jewish Christians, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also, we Jewish people like you and me, Peter, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor as Jewish people, to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be, quote, sinners, meaning because we no longer keep food laws and such, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, he's referring there to the law of Moses and uh, the, the old covenant structure, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. How did that come about? I have been crucified with Christ. <laughs> and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. (laughs) This ends the reading of the Word of God. May God bless it to all your hearts. Have a seat. Thank you. Humanity's greatest need is to be accepted by the living God to finish this life and stand in the presence of a holy God and know without any doubt that you stand right before His eyes, that you stand justified in His eyes. That is our greatest need. We don't always feel that. In fact, life has a lot of pressures. I know a lot of pains and difficulties, and sometimes you... We feel like there are other more pressing needs. Maybe economic. Maybe it's our health. But listen, I tell you, the most, the most important thing in your life is to be reconciled to the living God because we will all die and we will stand in His presence. Everything else pales in comparison. We need to be justified before His eyes. And Paul, as you have heard him explain, says that justification is the verdict of a judge. We've gone over this for two weeks now. It is a declaration, a once for all, unchangeable declaration that one is considered not guilty and righteous in his eyes. Declared just, not made just. Judges declare people not guilty. They don't make them not guilty. And this... Idea. This reality is offensive to human pride because it makes clear that there's absolutely nothing a human being can do to earn God's favor. Nothing. The cross, that is the crucifixion of Jesus, is a picture of human helplessness. There's nothing you can do. This had to be done. So don't go thinking you're going to improve on. Don't go thinking you're going to make it better. But the good news of the gospel is that anyone can be declared not guilty and righteous in God's court of law freely. Freely by trusting in the dying and the doing of Jesus. (laughs) This is justification by grace alone through faith alone on the merits of Christ alone. Right. That's the heart of verse 16. It's the heart of the gospel. It's all right there. Verse 16, we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, right? There is no other way. We are saved. We are saved by the dying and doing of Jesus alone. We said last week, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, to quote a friend, right? It's the only way. And this verdict, this verdict, how does it come about? How does it work? And and that's where we were last week. This verdict comes about because of the believer's union with Christ, our union with the Savior. Union with Christ means simply this. Christ is in us, and we are in Him. Believers are in Him. Union with Christ is a way of summing up all the times that Paul says, Christ in you, and you in Christ. Union with Christ is the doctrine, the understanding, the teaching that there is an unbreakable, invisible, indissoluble union, spiritual connection between every believer and Christ. He is the reason we can be justified, because He atoned for sin and He lived the righteous life. And when we are in Him that when God looks at you, He sees His Son. That's justification by grace through faith. And this union, this union, we said, has both a, a representative aspect and an experiential aspect. Now, we're, we're, we're this is where we were last week, and if you, you weren't able to follow it, that, that might be something to go back and listen to, but there's a representative aspect element or aspect. Representative union with Christ refers to this, that what he did, he did on my behalf, such as what happened to Christ happened to me. I was crucified with Christ, says Paul. You weren't there. I was in him. Right. His death was my death because he represented me, right? And so we share not only in his death, which is all important, right? His atoning death, but also in his life, in his righteousness, in his resurrection, and so forth. Paul works this out later in greater detail in Romans chapter 6. And this, this representative union is such that if it is asked, Tony? What is your standing? What is your relationship to the law of God? I can say, and every believer can say, I stand before the perfect law of God as one who has paid for all its penalties for sin because Christ was crucified for sin according to the law and I was crucified with Christ. And so it's paid. I could also say what is your standing before the perfect law of God? I could say, I stand before the law of God as one who has fulfilled every one of its righteous requirements with glad submission. Because Christ lived a life of submission under the law of God. And I am in Christ and Christ is in me. You see how thorough this is? How complete this is? So much so that Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians 3, verse 3, that your life is hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, you see. All that is His is yours. And so we all, believers, all participate in the triumphs of Jesus. He is our head, our, our head. There's a corporate solidarity, the one for the many, just like Israel participated in David's triumph over Goliath. We saw that last week. They all shared in that. And so do we as Christians share in the victory of Christ. That's representative union. Yeah. 2,000 years ago, you were crucified with Christ if you're a Christian. 2,000 years ago, you lived a perfect life if you're in Christ, you see, if you're a Christian. Now, what is the experiential aspect of union with Christ? Well, that answers the question, when when does a person experience this union in his or her lifetime? After all, Paul didn't always live like he died with Christ, did he? He was out trying to kill Christians, you see. So when is it that a person enters into that union which took place 2,000 years ago, representatively, when does, it, when, when does that person enter into it? And the answer is, at the moment that you are born again, the moment the Spirit opens your eyes to who Christ is and you are given the gift of, of faith, at that moment you are united to Christ who is your Savior. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation by grace through faith, right? And at that moment, you experience your union with Christ. Faith is the gift, we said, a gift of God by which union with Christ becomes operative in a person's life. And at that moment, if you're still following me, at that moment, the Christ has done everything necessary for your salvation in history 2,000 years ago, that Christ who is outside of you, at that moment, comes inside of you, experientially, right, to dwell in you. So we might say there is an objective union, historical representative, and a subjective union, experiential, right? in time. Christ for me, what He's done outside of me, Christ in me, what He does experientially in my life, right? And uh, you remember, the, uh, it's been shared several times here and in our discipleship classes, that the Reformers would refer to many statues of, of Christ with both arms open, I just drove through Baja to visit the churches this last week in Mexico. And there's a replica of that great statue of Christ that's in in Brazil where he stands with both arms. And the reformers would say, when you receive Christ, you receive the whole Christ. Not just the for me arm, but the in me arm. And that answers the question, doesn't justification by faith alone lead to sin? No, it's not just Christ for me, it's Christ in me too, you see. No one receives a half Christ. You receive a whole Christ. To quote the, um, the, the, the hymn I quoted last week, Rock, Rock of Ages, yet again. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Be of sin the double cure. save from wrath, Christ for me. And make me pure, Christ in me, you see. The hymn writers understood this. (laughs) Christ is the double cure. No one receives half a cure. Because no one receives half a Christ. And so the question is, have you experienced union with Christ? Calvin, the reformer, said, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from Him. All that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that He possesses is nothing to us. Here it is. Until, until we grow into one body with Him. Until we're in union with Him experientially alright so let me illustrate it imagine that you like the prodigal son you went away you went to Europe you had a great time you had a blast and you blew all your money and in fact not only did you blow all your money you got yourself into deep debt and your father hears about this And he lovingly, without saying anything, deposits all the funds you need in your personal bank account. Whose money is it? It's yours. It's in your account. It's in your name, you say. Did you earn it? No. Do you deserve that? No. Do you need it? (laughs) Yes. But all that in your name does nothing for you until you know it's there. Hear the gospel preached. And you believe and start drawing money out. (laughs) And so the gospel, the gospel announces sin's debt has been paid for you. And your righteousness account it's full. <laughs> it's all been done and deposited, you see. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a commandment. Believe. Believe. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You are now withdrawing, you see. And you'll receive the whole Christ. And what happens then? The Christian life has begun, you see. You are now living as a Christian. Why? Why? Because Christ lives in me. You have died to the law and you can now, as Paul puts there, live to God. Before you could not live to God, you were not alive to God. You were an enemy of God. You may have never characterized yourself that way. You may have been a really religious person. But God was at enmity with you because you thought you could actually do something to merit His love and righteousness. Christ lives in me, says Paul. And He has received, and you have received the double cure. Christ for me, I'm justified, but that's not it. That's only part of the story. Christ in me, I can now live to God. And how do we live this life now to God? How do we live this life to God well, here's what Paul says. Not by, not by structuring my life according to the law again. That's what he's telling Peter. I don't live the Christian life by going back and living like a Jew who lived under the old covenant because that's over. Why would I rebuild what's been torn down? So how do you live your life as a Christian, Paul? How do we live our life? He said, life is not marked by that anymore. This is how I do it. I, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Christian life. The life I live, I live by faith. Not by any other structure. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the key statement here in this part of, the, of this letter. This is how one walks in step with the truth of the gospel. And that's not what Peter was doing any longer. He was not walking in step with the truth of the gospel because he was not organizing his life and living his life by faith in the Son of God, who he is and what he's done for him. Rather than that, he was Structuring it around the old covenant again, food laws and so forth. So let's examine closely what this means this morning. This new life, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I, this morning, I, I want to give you three key components that come from this. This new life involves having a new Lord, it involves having a new power, it involves having a new means. And as I was up early this morning, I thought, I should have also said a new motive. <laughs> so I'm going to say it. <laughs> and that motive is the gratitude for the love of Christ. Yeah. A, new lo- a new Lord. How? Why do I say a new Lord? Paul says, it is no longer I who live. Now, when Paul says that, he doesn't mean that he's, his personality is has been suppressed that he's lost his identity or his individual personhood he's not some weird robot now that's not that's not what Paul means what Paul means is that the old I the old me the old Paul is no longer in control here that's the this is an issue of who's in control The old Paul, that Paul who thought that he could actually achieve a righteousness that would merit his salvation, that old Paul that thought he could keep the law in such a way that God would have to say, my goodness, Paul, you're it, (laughs) you're in, come on in, that old Paul, in other words, to put it blankly, that old Paul that was dominated by self-centered sinful pride and self-righteousness that thought he was better than other people. See, that old Paul, that I, is dead. It's no longer I who live. That's the I here, that Paul. But Christ lives in me. See, there's a, there's a new boss in town in Paul's heart now. And it's Christ who lives in me. He is the one directing my, la- my life. Christ is in control. Now Paul usually speaks about the holy spirit indwelling a person, but he does at times speak about Christ indwelling a person as well. Uh, Colossians 1:27 he says to them, Christ in you the hope of glory. That certain promise of glory, right? And in Romans 8 verses 9 through 10 he makes the connection between Christ being in a believer and the spirit of Holy Spirit being in the believer listen to listen to what he says he says to these Christians those who are in the flesh cannot please God meaning you are still in the category of you're not born again you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him The Spirit of God dwells in you. The Holy Spirit, that Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. That's how Christ dwells in you. Where is Christ now? He's at the right hand of the Father. But He dwells in you, how? By the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Christ. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Alive to God, right? We are alive to God because of righteousness. And then, of course, there's also John 14, uh, verse 6, that whole chapter and things he says there, verse 16 he says, I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper, a comforter, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him. The Spirit is a person, not a thing, not a nit, not a source, uh, nor knows Him. You know Him for He h- dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit it will be in you, he tells the, the disciples. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yeah. when he, he will come to them and to us by way of the Spirit. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. <laughs> when the Spirit comes right, into a person's life. And so... The Christ who has done all that we need for salvation in history past, outside of us. You and I weren't there. We weren't alive 2,000 years ago. But that Christ comes to live in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And while our assurance, our assurance that we are justified forever, that is rooted in what? The objective work at the cross. Christ for me 2000 years ago that's the basis of my assurance right for me we also know this that there has to be an experiential aspect to the christian life not just an intellectual one because john the apostle says in 1 john 4:13 we know it is true we live in him and he in us how do we know it's true Because He has given us of His Spirit. Well, that's how we know. The Spirit of God comes into our lives. And and so we have a new Lord. And the Spirit dwelling in us brings about a new power. A new capacity, right? When the Holy Spirit enters a believer, this will make a difference. It will result in some degree of change. One of the great errors, I think, of of some Christian circles is trying to be specific about or overly specific about what exactly that change will look like and how we'll measure it and to what degree. And before you know it, We're doing the very same things that that the Galatians were starting to do, right? Which is what? It's not enough to be united to Christ. We need to also see this, 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 and this. And by the way, I'm the inspector. So either I'll tell you who's in and who's out. What we read, we heard earlier, read this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. According to the riches of His glory, He may grant you, believer, you Christian, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell. He already dwells there, but dwell profoundly in your hearts through faith that you may being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. Strength to comprehend. Strength to understand the love of God for you and so forth. So we have a new Lord. That's part of the new life. We have a new power, which is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes into our life. There'll be a difference because He convicts us of sin. He illumines God's Word to us. Things that never used to make sense on some days you just go, oh my gosh. Well, yeah. <laughs> How could I have missed that? <laughs> because now the Spirit is illuminating, illuminating your understanding. He motivates. He empowers. He gives us spiritual gifts, right? And so this, this change is so So dramatic that Paul, again, he likens it to death and new life. I've died to sin and the law, and I'm alive to Christ, and I'm alive to God. That's that's the change. Now, he calls it, he refers to it in another way, which many will remember. He captures this transition that happens with union with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ he is what a new creation. What a way to put it, huh? If anyone is in Christ, he's a little bit better of a guy. No, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, the the new age to come it has broken into this person's life. Right. Uh, that's that's what's happening. Uh, the Spirit is now at work in this age in a believer. Now, I'm just, Paul doesn't address this here, but I'm just going to make this statement because I know it comes into our minds, and that is some of you are whispering to yourself, so why do I still sin? Or why do I still struggle? Or worse, you're thinking, so why does she still, you know, or something like that. You should not be thinking like that, okay? But so it's a question that emerges right here, right? Uh, I don't want to develop this too much. That's not what Paul does here. I just want to remind you that while every believer is truly new, no believer in this life is entirely new. The new creation has come in, but sin has not been eradicated in you. Christians are the only people who live in the overlapping ages. The age of Adam, sin, fallen, and the age of Messiah, spirit, righteousness. They overlap in us. Hence, Galatians chapter 5. The flesh sets itself against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, right? There's two things going on in a person, right? Right. We used to say sin is no longer president, but he is still resident. It's still in you, causing you to stumble. And so this new life, Paul says... Brings about a new Lord. The old Paul is no longer in control. Christ lives in me. And because he lives in me, I'm alive to God because I have a new power. I'm, the Spirit dwells in us. And there is also what? A new means by which I live my life. I no longer me- live it by trying to measure how much mint and cumin I'm tithing this week. I'm no longer trying to measure my life, order my life according to the old covenant law under which I was raised my entire life. Paul says, I I have a new way of living this life. I have a new means. The new means is the life I now live, I live by faith, he says. Ha ha, there it is. I live by faith, and faith has an object. By faith in the Son of God, and the Son of God does something for us. Who love me? and gave himself for me he says that's how i live my my life he says now says paul hmm now let's let's think about this for a moment some point out that he says the life i now live the life i live well do you live or do you not cuz a minute ago you said i no longer live <laughs> well paul must to make sure that his first statement is misunderstood paul never meant that he that he he's no longer alive <laughs> What he's saying now is that he has to keep living in this age. The life I live in the flesh, and by that he does, he does—he's not talking about the sinful influence. He's talking about his body. That's how I think he—that's how he's using it here. The life I now live—I I have to live in this flesh, this body. I still got to live out my life now. And so, this life I live in my body, I live by faith. Now, I do want to point out that he says, I live, and he has to live. He has to make decisions. He has to get up every day and do something, just like you and me, and I point this out because there are various movements throughout church history that have used Galatians 2.20, mostly the first half of the verse and never the second half of the verse, to, to present a view of the Christian life that is passive. You may have heard it under different forms. quietism is one. Uh, the higher life is another one. Uh, let go and let God. Right. In other words, somehow the Christian life is when he says, "I no longer live," like it's passive. You just you worry too much, Tony. You you you're doing too much. You're just well, this reading and all this that. Just just relax. Sit back and let God take care of everything. Well, listen. God doesn't read the Bible for me. God doesn't. God doesn't get up early and pray for me. God doesn't. God doesn't try and love people that are hard to love for me. God doesn't do, you know, he does all those things through me. He empowers me to do those things. But the life I now live in this body, I have to live it, you see. I got to get up and go. <laughs> and so the Christian life is anything but passive. So I just want to clear that up. Paul says elsewhere, I buffet my body. He doesn't say, you know what, Corinthians? Here's the secret. Just kick back. No. I buffered my body. He tells Timothy what? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. right? Even Peter, who would come, obviously he came to an understanding with Paul. Praise God, right? Because later Peter wrote 1 and 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, this is what Peter said. For this very reason, make every effort. 2 Peter 1. Does that sound passive? Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being, here's where the passive Christian life leads, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. There it is. There's where the let go and let God leads, ineffective and unfruitful. And so, no, no. Galatians 2.20, when he says, I, I no longer live, he's not, he's not talking about a passive view of the Christian life. He's saying, the life I now live in the body, in this, fl- in this body, in this broken down world, in this world filled with sin, in this place where people let me down, in this place where I go and preach and somebody throws stones at me in this place where I go into into synagogues and people throw me out and want to kill me. This life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. That's it. That's what marked his new life. And Paul will call this, we'll get there later, but in Galatians 5, 6, he calls this faith working through love. Faith working through love. Why is that? Because... What sums up the entire law? Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, faith in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, that's all implied there, (laughs) works itself out through love. So we'll get there later, but that's what Paul is talking about. The life that he lives in the mortal body and the life that you and I live in this mortal body in a fallen, twisted world, surrounded by temptation and difficulty. You all know it. You all see it. You're bombarded with it. Your eyes and your ears you hear things. You're constantly hearing different voices coming at you. This life you must live in this context, in your body. That life you have to live by faith in the Son of God. Tom Schreiner in his Commentary on this point says the new life is not characterized fundamentally by working for God, which is what Paul used to do, but by believing in the Son. Believing in the Son, right? Now let's take apart that phrase. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Okay, let's think about that. I live by faith. See, this is the means. The means is faith. His life is characterized by trusting in the Son. And so, if Paul's faith and ours has a specific object, what is the object? Interestingly, here Paul doesn't often refer to Jesus as the Son of God, but here he does. He's been calling him Christ, 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 but here he says the Son. And why is that? Because God has a Son, and Adam was called the Son, and that Son failed. And another son was promised, and the Son of God came into the world, and he is the Son of God par excellence, and by being united to him, we are all sons of God. And so he says, I don't keep my eyes on this little son right here. I keep my eyes on that son, the Son of God. Not on this son. I keep my eyes on the Son of God. My faith is in the Son of God. Who he is and what he's done. And specifically, he said, here's what, here's what he's done. Who he is, he's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. And he, he is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a, that's a highly personal statement, isn't it? I could almost hear Paul's voice breaking up. You're out there trying to be righteous on your own. You're out there trying to add to the work of the Son of God. You've lost sight of something. He loved me. He Gave himself for me. I'm not going to improve on that. That's where Paul's going with it. Highly personal. You know, most of the time he talks about the Son being given for our sins, right? Or us. uh, Chapter 1, when he started... uh, Verse 4, who gave himself, there's the same verb. He gave himself for our sins. But here Paul is highly personal. You know why? Because Paul's experience, remember, is not isolated. He is a paradigm. He's a picture of the experience of every true Christian. Every genuine believer has to be able to say and believe in the bottom of his or her heart. I don't just believe Jesus lived and that he was crucified by Romans and that he died for sins. I, I believe he loved me and gave himself for me. May God open your eyes to see that. Can you say that and mean it from the bottom of your heart? You see? And so it's highly personal here. And that's how God deals with individuals. Look at the cross and ask yourself, am I in that? Did I, was I crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago? And if in your heart something starts working, you can say, my goodness, he died for me because he loved me. Praise God, you've been born again. You're alive to God. And so that is the focus of his life. He looks at Christ for me. He gave himself for me. For Paul, that was some, you know, 40 odd years ago when he wrote this after the crucifixion. For you and me, it's 2,000 years plus. Christ gave himself for me at the cross 2,000 years ago. And that's what he's focusing on. But he obviously is also focusing on Christ in me. Because he already just said before that, that he dwells in me. So he's looking at the the double cure. That's how he lives his life, by faith in the Son of God, who loved him and gave himself for him, the double cure. Christ for me, I'm justified by his his dying and doing. Christ in me, I am alive to God. And so there it is, that sums up the Christian life. The Christian life is lived by daily trusting in God the objective grace of God outside of you, Christ for me, and the subjective grace of God in you, Christ in me, every single day. That's true, you see. It's true about you every single day. And to not live under that light is like freaking out because you think you ran out of money and you forget that your bank account's full. (laughs) Paul says to the Corinthians... You own you you own all things in Christ. <laughs> you know what are you worried about? Says Paul, the world is yours, eternity is yours, the new heavens, the new earth is yours. Let's get on with serving the kingdom. You see, when we can keep our eyes there and our faith there, then that's how we're propelled and we get through struggles in the Christian life. And we all do this. We all have to do this. This is not set against obeying. When Paul says he's not going to rebuild the Old Testament law, he doesn't mean he doesn't want to obey God. <laughs> Don't set faith against obedience. And in Romans, Paul speaks of the obedience of faith. That obedience which comes out of faith. <laughs> so they're not, not to be set against each other. It's by believing that we are given the power to do. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, 2:12 2, and 13. Therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now notice always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, not just because I was there, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, not work towards, work it out. Right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence, for it is God who works in you. <laughs> He's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that happens when you can live by faith believing that Christ is real and not only is he for you, so whatever you do in your life, you are always justified. And that Christ is in you. So that no matter how hard things look. He's going to be there. He will never abandon you. He will dwell in you. Living by faith. In the capacities you have now. In Christ. Every day. Christ in me. Is this new? Well the era of this was new. When Christ the Messiah came. But just faith in God was not new. That's always. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Hebrews 11, what does it have? It's a whole chapter, the hall of fame, the hall of faith, right? All the different names, you know. And even under the old covenant where, the, where Jesus was not even known as Jesus, but the Messiah was faintly there. It says these people through faith conquered kingdoms. My goodness. Can we get out of bed and read our Bible? These guys conquered kingdoms by faith. (laughs) And they didn't even know Jesus. But who by faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mounts of lions. Uh, You know what Hebrews 11 is about. And then chapter 12 says, if you're lacking motivation, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? Amen? Keep looking at him. That's what Paul's saying, how he lives his life. I live my life in this body now by faith in the Son of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. He's focusing on the work of Christ and that motive. There's the new motive. What's the new motive? Gratitude for the love of God. Tremendous, huh? We sang a song that came largely from 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul there speaks about how he worked hard, not to be loved by God, but because the Son of God loved him so much. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Harder than Peter, harder than John, harder than James. I worked harder than any of the other apostles, though it was not I. (laughs) <laughs> but the grace of God or we could say from Galatians but Christ right but the grace of God that is with me or as we sang not I but through Christ in me see. do you think you can't tackle a certain ministry opportunity live by faith in the son of God And move. Are you not sure you can keep going to a work environment that is oppressive? Live by faith in the Son of God who loved you, gave himself for you, is in you. You think you don't have the capacity to forgive someone who has injured you deeply, profoundly? Live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved you and gave himself for you? Whatever it is you f- have in front of you, you see, the whole Christian life, every day, every hour is lived the same way by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. And when you work, when you walk through that phase of your life, you come to the other side, then you can say, What? Yet not I, <laughs> but through Christ in me when someone says how in the world did you endure that how did you endure that he was so oppressive or she was so negligent or they were so unfair that was so painful how did you how in the world did you endure it yet not i but through christ in me some christians just never get moving you see Never get moved. I can't do, I couldn't. Yeah, you can't. I can't. <laughs> Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And so this is a very humble life of a life of submission, a life of daily praying to God. Now let's just let's just go to verse 21. I just saw it says 1021, so I said, okay, move on to verse 21 here. Uh, the Lord's talking to me here. All right. <laughs> Verse 21, Paul, Paul gives a summary statement and he kind of puts the last nail in the coffin to Peter and, those, and the Jewish followers. Remember, this is all a summary of, of, I'm sure he had more to say. This is a summary of his conversation with Peter. Here's his closing statement. He said, look, Peter, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There, last nail, close it. Whoa. Uh. That's the first right there. Okay. If, I don't know. That could be the devil's work right there. What's, what's Paul getting here at the end? I, well, this has been understood two ways. The first way is this. I don't think it's correct. In other words, some say that's, Paul is reacting to the fact that he's been, he has been criticized for that. Paul, you're, you're nullifying the grace of God that's found in the law of Moses. When you say that people don't have to keep the law of Moses. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think he's responding to a criticism to him. Because the whole tenor of this whole thing. Has been a correction of Peter. So when he says I do not nullify the grace of God. What he's saying is you nullify the grace of God. Not me. (laughs) I don't. you're, You're nullifying it. When you say Christ is not enough. This word nullify. The verb means to reject something. As invalid. And in essence. You're saying the death of Christ was invalid. Because by adding uh, self-righteousness, works-righteousness to what Christ has done, you're saying it's actually possible to be justified through works of the law. And if that's the case, why in the world would God send His Son into this world, be incarnate, live 33 years, and have to die under the curse of the law? If righteousness were through the law, he says, then Christ died for no purpose. So that's the last nail in the coffin. So, what do we learn today? Again, the gospel is glorious news because it tells us that Christ is the double cure. That in Christ we can be justified, Christ for me, and that in Christ we can be transformed, Christ in me. Justification and transformation. He is the double cure. And we can live this new life under a new Lord with new power, through a new means, faith, and with a new motive, right? The love of God for us. Just some points of application, and we'll finish. First, to those of you who are not yet, those of you who are not yet sure you believe in Christ, listen, if you do not have Christ, you actually have nothing. You're not partway there. You're not halfway there. You have nothing apart from Christ. When a person has Christ, he he or she has everything. But outside of him, you have nothing. God will judge you for your sins. And he will also judge you for your fruitless efforts at trying to, to lift yourself up and call yourself a righteous person. If you break the law at one point, you're guilty of all of it. So if you do not have Christ, listen, your soul is in extreme danger. You need to flee to Christ. There's nothing to accomplish. There's nothing to do. I'm not asking you to, you know, go home and throw away those magazines or this or that. What am I saying? I'm saying you need to believe that Christ is the Son of God, that He was crucified for you, that He loved you and He handed Himself over for you. Confess in your mouth Jesus as Lord, as your Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead for you, you will be saved. For those of you who are Christians, some brief points. First of all, these are not experiences that you are to pursue. Paul tells no one, go die to sin, go die to the law, go become alive to God. He doesn't say, uh, confess this, do that. He doesn't say, here are the four steps to this. He doesn't say, raise this hand. He doesn't say, sign this card. These are, nothing, th- these are not things you are to pursue or seek. These are things that are true of you because you are in Christ. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying is live in light of your full bank account. In Romans 6, he says, reckon yourself to be. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin, alive to God. In other words, live by faith trust that these things are true even when you fail secondly if Christ is the object of our faith fix our eyes on Jesus then it follows that the more we know of him and the more we know of his work the stronger our faith can become so the question is always the same what will you do about that in other words what new habits could you begin to form to help you grow in your understanding of Christ and his work Or what old habits can you reinforce? Again, not to merit anything before God. He's not impressed, but for the sake of your growth, right? That's what did Peter say. With all diligence, right? Make every effort to add to your faith these things. And thirdly, we have to avoid nullifying the grace of God. Like Peter in fact we're called to magnify the grace of God not nullify it and we've already thought about how we can nullify the grace of God like Peter which was what creating our own lists of what makes a super Christian and and this and that but I've said that several times so I'm going to talk about other ways that we can nullify the grace of God whenever you and I look to someone or something for what only Christ can give us We are nullifying the grace of God. He is our Lord. He is our guide. He is our power. He is our Savior. He is our purpose. He is our future. He is all these things, right? All I have is Christ, we sing. But when we turn to the idols of the culture for any one of those things, for guidance, for strength, for purpose, then we have nullified the grace of God because we're saying Christ is not enough. If you want to know what the idols of the culture are, go to the magazine rack, and there you see them. The culture is constantly telling you what? That real purpose comes from X, from beauty, from health, from wealth, from possessions, from power, from politics, from you name it. Yeah, so when you're lying on your deathbed, you want us to bring the hot rod magazine? What do you want to hear when you get that phone call? And they say, I'm sorry, it's, it is cancer. So let's not nullify the grace of God. Rather we magnify it. How do we magnify it? By faith, faith magnifies the grace of God. When you live by faith, you're saying to the world, Christ is enough. Let's pray and bring our time to an end here together. Lord God, we exalt in you, we praise you, we magnify you, we are grateful. We also confess our weakness. Yeah, indeed, Lord, we just lay it out. We are weak, we are broken sometimes. We, we look outside of ourselves, but not to you, to others, to things, to people, And at other times, we look too much inwardly to ourselves for our own strength. and We are filled with doubts. We're filled with hopelessness. I pray, God, you strengthen every brother or sister in this room, every Christian in this room, to live by faith in the Son of God and that you open the eyes of those, Lord, who are outside Christ, who do not have him, and grant them, Lord, your glorious grace that they would be saved. And we pray now, Lord, as we bring our gifts and conclude our time, that you receive these offerings from our heart. Be with those who cannot give, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.